ship headed out to Alaska sometime early September 2017 and had a bit of time on my hands. So I've been reading an interesting book and figured it may be interesting to others as well to be able to talk some about the contents of the book, specifically as it relates to how uh, these kinds of thoughts and thought leaders have influenced culture today. So the book is called Intellectuals. It's by a guy named Paul Johnson. Uh, this is the book and it's pretty good. It's by guy Paul Johnson and he is one of my favorite historians. He is a, a guy that's written for the last 20, 30 years. Uh, written a bunch of other things, read a history of the modern era, history of the Jews, or two of his good books that I've, that I've read that I'm working through, history of the Jews still currently. But this book about intellectuals, it's called Intellectuals from Marx and Tolstoy to Sartre and Chomsky. It's a fascinating, in my opinion, fascinating look at those that have shaped culture and thought. Specifically, Johnson goes and speaks about the, these sort of his curated list of intellectuals because his early claims in the first couple of pages of the book are that in the 1800s, really Enlightenment era and on, for the last 200 years, there's, come, there's risen a new breed of clerics, he says, uh, that for so many years the church has been the guider, the shaper, the influencer of thought and culture. And one of the things that the Enlightenment did was that it, it, it raised this whole new group of people, or rather a whole new group of people came to the forefront that created the Enlightenment. Um, and these people really supplanted the church's authority to create uh, culture, to be the ones that influence and set the, the tone for how people think. Prior to this Enlightenment uh, philosophical, intellectual rationalism, uh, really the church was the one, the clerics, the priests, the ones in power were the ones that were setting uh, moral norms, moral imperatives and cultural norms for people. But there was a tremendous amount of problems, many thought, with that uh, particular arrangement. And so this new breed of intellectuals came to the forefront and essentially what they said was that they didn't need the church, they didn't need these, these clerics and these priests telling telling culture, telling the world essentially how to think and act and reason. Uh, most of them were either deists or, or atheists or agnostics that said, look, we don't need the church to tell us what's true and what's good. We can do that through the sheer force of our own reason. Our own minds are capable of creating for us truth and morality that can guide culture. So in a large capacity, the idea was that we needed to get away from superstition, uh, belief in a god, that ultimately led to what many consider to be totalitarianism or authoritarian forms of church polity. Uh, and they wanted to liberate people from that oppressive system and free them into the mind, the rationality. Some of Johnson's claim in this book, and I tend to agree with him, is that these, these new breed of clerics, he calls them, uh, didn't do a whole lot better than the church for elevating people uh, because what, what the church was able to do for thousands of years, that it, it had recourse to a belief in a higher power, into history and tradition, things that had shaped culture for, for literally millennia. And in the 1800s, this new breed of people said, look, we don't need any of that. We don't have to found ourselves in history or culture or theology or um, orthodoxy. 
we can do it through the sheer force of our own will and rationality. And so this new breed of people came and began to reshape culture and were profoundly influential and have risen in the last 200 years to be probably, in many people's opinion, uh, the pinnacle of cultural thought are rationalist thinkers, uh, philosophers, ideologues. So while the church has declined in its influence, the intellectual has risen. And we can see that uh, in a number of capacities with with the rise of secular institutions and the church uh, organization declining and the university increasing. So there's a number of comments that could be made about that, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time on my cruise here and thinking through these various thinkers and then giving a little bit of a, a summary report on, on what it is that they thought and the way that they uh, had articulated things. So the first intellectual that Johnson here um, speaks about is a guy named Rousseau. And so Rousseau was an interesting character. We're going to give a brief little outline. I'm going to talk really in three capacities. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about his history, talk about his main influential ideas, and then talk specifically about his personal life. Because one of the critiques the intellectuals began to make of the church and of the, the clerics and priests was that, that their system of government, their polity, their, their religiosity, their theological frameworks were very different than the way that they personally lived their lives. Like the, the claim was that the church had become very power hungry and had, and had spoken a bunch of things but hadn't lived consistently with it. And there are a number of, I think, pretty compelling examples of how that's the case. But in the effort and the desire to throw that off, uh, it gave rise to a whole new breed of people that gave us a brand new system. And I think that it's a fair critique to ask the same kind of question that they asked of the church after 200 years of them uh, having the dominant influence in, in Western civilization. How have their ideas uh, influenced culture? And specifically, has these ideas that were supposed to elevate culture were these people living up to those ideas in their own internal worlds? How are their lives congruent with their ideology or their philosophy? I think that that's a fair critique, uh, namely because, in my opinion, over the last 200 years, we have not evolved into something that is brighter, stronger, more cohesive, more liberated. I think that culture has been devolving in some capacity away from genuine connectedness. Human culture is getting more and more uh, difficult. American culture in particular is rather toxic uh, at this day and age, which for right now it's 2018. And I think that um, this is a fair critique. So we're gonna look at that. So the first one we're gonna do here is a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's French, so I didn't say it right, but a little bit about him. He was born in Geneva in 1712, his father, was a watchmaker. His mother was came from a wealthy landed uh, aristocracy uh, in, in the Swiss city of Geneva. She wasn't particularly wealthy of the higher echelons, but she was wealthy, which afforded Rousseau a measure of um, privilege and culture. He had full voting rights, which was not common for the common commoners. So he had uh, legal privilege and voting rights, uh, but his mother died shortly after his birth. So he was raised in large part by his father in his early years, uh, but there was some trouble in his home life because he had a, one older brother, 
but when, his, when Rousseau was six years old, his father sent his older brother away uh, for boarding school, essentially, because his father thought that his older brother was incorrigibly evil. So after about five years in this boarding school, the older brother ran away when Rousseau was 11, never to be seen again. So essentially, Rousseau was raised as an only child. About four years after his brother ran away, when Rousseau was 15 years old, uh, Rousseau ran away from home. He was raised in a Calvinist household, and he ran away from home and converted to Catholicism, uh, primarily to obtain protection of a wealthy French madam. This was kind of Rousseau's pattern uh, throughout his life, uh, up into his late 30s, early 40s, is that he was dependent upon wealthy women and the aristocracy to take care of him. Uh, he was very much like a child himself that never grew up. And so uh, that's really the way they lived his life for the first 20, 25 years of his life. But there was this major event that began to happen in his life in, what year was it? In 1750. He went to go visit a friend who had been thrown in jail for writing a tract about, uh, about not believing in God, defending atheism. And that got him thrown in jail, which I think was unjust and unfair and part of a larger critique that was needed in culture at the time. But the story goes is on Rousseau's way home from visiting this friend, who is a famous uh, literary philosophical mind in his own right, uh, he saw a pamphlet on the street for a writing content, contest that was a writing contest to be able to articulate what you think about science and the arts as it relates to culture. And Rousseau said in his memoirs, that at that moment he was just flooded with a, a realization that it's only truth and it's only virtue. And he would spend all of his life declaring from that moment on truth and virtue. So he penned this essay, it won the contest, and it catapulted him into French heights of intellectual thought uh, and belief at that time. And that was in his 39th year at the age of about 39. So from the age of 39 until his death in 1778, 28 years he wrote prolifically. Uh, he was a very gifted writer, wrote um, a lot of influential documents that uh, many credited Rousseau with the uh, inspiring the French Revolution. Uh, even the French Revolution happened about 10 years after Rousseau's death, but he was in, in very large part the father of the French Revolution, the inspiration for it through his ideologies. So these are some of the main ideas that Rousseau brought to modernism. One of them was about education. And uh, he was particularly influential in creating sort of this cult of creation. And it was this idea, look, we need to go out into nature and we can learn inside of nature and we can be inspired in our scientific pursuits and our pursuits of the things outside of nature that we need to educate ourselves, not necessarily with the scriptures and these old manuscripts and books that people were so involved in, but we can do it out inside of nature. Um, much of his theories of education really rested on educating children, not just children, adults as well, but, but throughout his life, his, his political and philosophical bent was to educate people more so that they can be liberated from this uh, individualism into a more communal sense of being. And he writes specifically about how individuals need to get rid of that individualism and give themselves over wholly to the state. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, 
one of his uh, quotes is specifically about how if you if you if you have a person and you either need to give that person wholly over to the state or you need to have them live alone separately outside of culture outside of city all alone literally like naked and afraid alone in Alaska all by themselves so they either need to be alone with no one around them or given totally over to the state but Rousseau said if you are to do both of those things you divide their heart and you tear them in two so there really wasn't a balance or a middle ground specifically for Rousseau in this capacity and we'll come back to that another one of his major ideas is that he he basically distrusted distrusted the the gradual progress of the improvements made through materialistic culture so one of the ideas is that over thousands of years, culture sort of progresses and you learn one thing and things move slowly, but they sort of grow in the understanding and culture grows and builds kind of one thing after the next. And Rousseau distrusted that, didn't like that, wanted to overthrow that. Uh, and he thought that essentially that reason had its limits. This was interesting because he was a very much uh, a product of and, a, and an incubator cause uh, his thoughts were incubators and a cause for the Enlightenment to grow, which was very landed in rationality. So he's a bit of a contradiction here. But he said that, that reason has its limits. And essentially he began to say that the human mind has to be freed from this, this, this propensity to want to reason and think. Uh, and the way that you did this is that you tapped into something that he considered was deeper. This was your intuition. This was your poetry. This was the romanticized intuition and the belief of passions and he thought himself the most passionate virtuous man that ever lived he uh didn't have a great deal of humility but rousseau really founded and was the beginning of the romantic movement and the modern introspective literature that sort of seized seized uh and, and moved throughout france one of his most um, powerful ideas gave birth, these two ideas, he talked about the evil of competition and a critique of capitalism. And this is where he becomes very influential even to this day. And you may recognize some of this thought uh, uh, in culture today, so let me just lay that out for you. He believed that essentially human nature is selfish. That we as humans we're born into this sense that we only think about ourselves. We're focused, self-focused. Um, and that, that, that self-focusedness, uh, the selfishness, gets exacerbated. It, it, it increases when you get into urban environments. Because when you go into cities, and he was critiquing the, the Parisian life and the life in Geneva, and when all these people would come and they'd gather inside of the cities, what he thought was happening was that this selfish desire that lives inside of everyone, when you get next to your neighbor and you have all these other people around you and in your life, that that begins um, to, to incite this selfish humanity to begin to think about themselves in terms of being better than their neighbor. Like it's an identity issue that we feel better about who we are as we compare ourselves to our neighbor. And so this comparison, um, this comparison begins to make people think uh, better of themselves and try and best their neighbor, impress people with money, strength, or brains. So we kind of see that now in modern day culture in the 70s and 60s and 70s and 80s are very much like keep up with the Joneses kind of uh, uh, suburban life. 
But the problem is that for Rousseau is that this brings rise to competition. And competition alienates man from what he believes was the better thing, and it destroys the inborn communal sense that you have. So competition is most often seen in the desire to acquire private property. And Rousseau hated the idea of private property. He thought that as people were trying to impress one another, they would just consume and consume and they would capture private property and they would hold on, hold on to the private property. And this alienated people from the state and it alienated them from what he considered to be a natural state. And these are his ideas that the natural state is the place where humanity submits to communal structures, denies the individualism, and gives themselves wholly over to the state. So, for Rousseau, getting rid of the family confines, like a mother and a father and a house, and a belief in personal property, and an individualism based on an identity inside of a family culture, he wanted to get rid of all of that. He thought that that was um, base, and he wanted to free the person to come into full allegiance and dependence upon the state. So for Rousseau, the perfect, the perfect state was both authoritarian, it had complete, absolute control over every aspect of the individual's life, and um, it was totalitarian. So it had control and it had complete control, authority and totality. So this caused a number of issues. And he also thought that uh, politics was the universal cure for the ill of mankind. So if you're gonna get rid, I wanna read you a quote here. If you wanna get rid of the individualism that has individual people pursuing their own individual desires to get private property, to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, to be able to get rid of all of that, you had to re-educate children and adults to have allegiance to the state. And he believed that, um, quote, everything is at root dependent on politics. Virtue is the product of good government. Vices belong less to man than man badly governed. So essentially what he says there is that um, the vices don't belong inside of man. Vices happen when mankind is not governed properly. So that's a powerful statement, and it sets all of the problems, not in human nature, but the problems are because there's poor government. So if you can solve the problems of human nature and bring people into this utopian culture, all you have to do is have good government, which is a bit of an oxymoron in my opinion. Uh, and so he said that the political process and the new state it brings into being are the universal remedies for the ills of mankind. Politics will do all. So this idea that humanity would be um, better off if the government was big and it ruled every aspect of the life of the individual uh, was a fascinating and, um, in my opinion, a pretty scary look into what is growing up. And it is part of a critique of what people would say very forcefully against that idea that that human property or private property and human uh, desire to to have an idea or an um, uh, an identity in themselves developed through a family system through a family unit 
to be able to understand who they are in relationship to others, but not define their identity as it's connected to the state. And so Rousseau really created these ideas and birthed them into culture. So one of the questions uh, that this book raises is how did these people then live their lives? They were profoundly influential. They tried to create these, uh, Rousseau in particular, tried to create this utopian culture by having a contract with the state uh, and by everyone becoming involved and dependent and submissive to the state. Um, how did he live his own personal life? Well, here's a short little list uh, of a little bit about him. Again, this is a, a bullet point list and the book goes into much greater detail, but um, for someone who was profoundly influenced by education and the desire to teach children and educate them so that they would, would, be, would be functioning members of a larger culture, he didn't seem to have a great concern for any of his children. One gal named Teresa, this was a woman that he strung along for over 20 years. Um, he openly said that he didn't love her, never felt an ounce of affection for her, but he just used her to gratify his sexual desires. So he had five children by this woman. The first child, uh, he convinced her, basically forced her through great sorrow uh, of her own heart and what he feigned as sorrow. He convinced her to give the child away to a notorious friend's institution where people would just drop off their babies and not raise them. So he wrote a little note and dropped it off. Uh, never named it, never participated with the child. And we call it an it because he never saw it as a human, as a life that was valuable to him. He had four more children uh, with this woman, Teresa. All of them were done and disposed with in the same way, except for the next four, he never bothered to write a note. He just dumped them off. From uh, documents of the day, it's pretty well established that one in four of these babies died in the first six to eight months, um, and something like five out of a hundred made it into their teenage years. So most likely all of Rousseau's five children through this woman he never married, all were given away to horrible conditions and perished within the first year or so of his life. Rousseau was uh, a violent man uh, by many accounts. He was dependent basically his entire life on women and wealthy aristocrats. Uh, he ingratiated himself into French culture and wrote numerous letters trying to get money and to get um, pensions and things delivered to him through, through the wealthy. And he basically lived his life seeking patronage. There was a number of, of people that did business with him and that were friends with him. He was very winsome and charming and immediately made a bunch of friends. But within a couple of years, the friends began to realize that he had a pretty deficient character. He was not someone that anybody wanted to be with or do business with for long. And so people like uh, David Hume, uh, I can't say this guy's name, Diriot, uh, Grimm, Voltaire, uh, all of these people wrote very uh, eloquently and darkly about uh, Rousseau's character. I want to read you a little bit. Um, Hume, at one time, thought that Rousseau was gentle, modest, affectionate, disinterested, and exquisitely sensitive. But after he spent a little bit of time with him, he decided at the end of his life that Rousseau was actually, quote, a monster who saw himself as the only important being in the universe. Dario, after long acquaintance, summed him up as, quote, deceitful, vain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical, full of malice. 
Grimm called him an odious monster. Voltaire, who was prone to argue with just about anyone, he's the guy that famously said, I don't agree with a single thing you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. This guy, a contemporary and a friend of Rousseau, at the end of his life, Voltaire called him, quote, a monster of vanity and vileness. And one modern academic lists Rousseau's shortcomings as follows, quote, he was a masochist, exhibitionist, neurosynthetic, hypochondriac, latent homosexual afflicted by the typical urge for repeated displacements, incapable of normal or parental affection, incipient, paranoid, narcissistic introvert rendered unsocial by his illnesses, filled with guilt feelings, pathologically timid, a kleptomaniac, infantilist, irritable, and miserly. So we can't necessarily just take these guys' words for it. Um, you could read the book and uh, read some of the letters and pieces to it, but it was just a fascinating story about a guy who so profoundly influences and to this day influences American education policy. Um, and you can see if you look at education policy over the last 20 some years, how much the, 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 the state, in this case it's not the state like the American state, but like the federal government, the state, um, the one in ultimate power has so profoundly and purposefully instituted a system of education that separates people out from individualism, from families, and begins to teach people what it thinks is the most important. And it elevates the state above the individual. And that's part of the problem with, I think, some of what goes on in our education system today is that, is that some of the traditional rights of families, mothers and fathers, and family units to teach and train children is, is being usurped by the state and they are seeding into culture this belief that if you want to make it, if you want to be a good contributing member, then you need to universalize health care, you need to universalize all these other elements of culture, that the federal government, that the state is the one that is, is the supplier and the benefactor of all of these things, and that we can have a better culture and a better society if we will just let go of our individualism, give more money in taxes, give more to the government, they know a better way to deal with the problems and the ills of the world. So that was Rousseau's major contribution to Western intellectualism, and I think that if you are a critical thinker in any capacity or involved in political thought or dialogue, you can see how that may be something that's influential in culture today. So I'll be doing a couple more of these probably on my cruise. The next one is Shelley, the great poet uh, in England. And we will probably, as it progresses, get into sort of my own thoughts and feelings about how these intellectuals uh, and these ideas have worked their way into Western culture. And then are they good, are they bad, are, are they valuable, and what's been some problems uh, that are associated with those. So I hope that was interesting.